Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome two comic authors, Brigitte Blair. Hi, nice to meet you. And Camilla Chong. Hello. It's very nice to have you. And this is the first time in this podcast that we have not had an author who's written a book that I've read and I can talk about. And the reason I invited you is because you are not only comic authors, but you did something. I didn't even know this existed, that there are no sort of standard rules for writing comics. And you developed something called the standard comic script. So, Camilla, you did this with a cartoonist named Steens. And if I understand correctly, Brigitta, you turned this into a Scribner template. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. You got it. So why are there no rules for this? I think the comics has been sort of like treated like the redheaded stepchild of a lot of different communities, including the writing community and including the, um, you know, art community, you know, people who do quote unquote high art and paintings and, you know, illustrators will understand that, yeah, comics is, is an art form unto itself. And it is, there's plenty of illustrators who cannot do comics, you know, or who find it very difficult. Right, because a comic is a narrative, whereas an illustration, it could be a single frame. Yes, and it's a, it's usually conveying like a, a single idea, maybe some layers of ideas within the sing, single image, but it's, it's usually conveying a message, whereas comics conveys a story. And a good example of that is political cartoons, where it is a single pane and it is a very strong message, which is both visual and verbal. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of like the redhead stepchild for... Um, amongst many different communities. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's never been like, there's never been established rules. Um, And I guess because it's never been taken seriously until recently, um, I think that's why there hasn't been, you know, now you can get an MFA in cartooning. You know, back in the day, you couldn't do that. Like, um, there just wasn't an option. And if you like go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, they would probably (laughs) laugh at you if you said you wanted to do an MFA in comics writing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's still not taken very seriously by a few uh, creative communities. I lived in France for a very long time, and in France, they call it the eighth art. And it has been considered an art for a very long time. Yeah, I definitely, it's like a, it's a cultural thing for sure. It varies across different countries. I think in France, they definitely take it a lot more seriously. Yeah, and they have a big festival every year in Angoulême for all types of comics, from children's comics to graphic novels. Brigitte, tell me about the work that you do. Yeah, of course. So I'm an author illustrator, so I primarily work with graphic novels, but I also have done picture books in the past. But my day job or non-publishing job is I actually work in the video game industry. So I do a lot of like tech stuff. And it's kind of interesting to me because I always try to take what I learn in my technology job and apply it to publishing because I find there's a lot of practices, especially in things like video games or websites that you can apply to the book space as well. And so when I saw that you know, Camilla and Steens were both working on the standard comic script. I'm like, this is perfect. You know, this is kind of what we do in the technology space. I would love to be a part of this in whatever way I can. And so with kind of my development design backgrounds in that space, I'm like, you know, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And luckily, the Scrivener stuff just kind of worked out. 
We'll talk about the template a bit later, but I'm really curious. If you're working in video games, are you doing storyboards, which is in a sense kind of like a comic? It very much is. So it's kind of funny because I specifically don't work with that, but I work with people who work with that. So what I'm known as a technical artist, which essentially it's kind of a hybrid of code and design. So instead of just, you know, illustrating things, I code them in order to make them appear. So it's kind of a, a fun job, but I feel a lot of that definitely applies to even working on the Scrivener template. Okay. And Camilla, you are a comics editor at Z2 Comics. How does that work? Is it any different than a book editor? You're you're looking at manuscripts and you're deciding what's good and what's not? Well, it, it kind of varies between different companies. Um, if you look at first, second, or Random House Graphic, they're going to kind of follow the more traditional publishing model where agents will approach them with different pitches and, you know, these things will have been vetted. Whereas for my company, it's it deals with licensed comics. So with that in mind, you know, we, we team up with uh, different uh, musical artists and celebrities, like, for example, Pantera or Tori Amos. We work directly with, like, either their representative or with them to develop a concept that they're really into. And then from there, you know, the editor's job would be to corral a bunch of uh, writer portfolios and samples, and they would pick the one that they like best. Um, and then from there also like the editor corrals a bunch of like samples for illustrators and cartoonists. And then, you know, they develop around um, their concept. And so it is, it's a little bit like project management. Would you say that's similar to a book packager? I'm not really sure what a book packager does. Ah, well, they take an idea and they make a book. So they find someone who's a cook and they bring everything together to make a cookbook, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, there is a, there's a certain amount of editing skills still that needs to um, be applied because, you know, writers need feedback on character development and plot holes and, you know, consistency, um, and then illustrators or cartoonists, sequential artists. Sorry, there's so many different terminology. Yeah. So sequential artists will need, um, you know, feedback on on similar things, you know, but like visual plot holes and visual consistency. And so, yeah, you still need, as a comics editor, you still need to have editorial skills when it comes to story, both uh, visual and verbal. So I'm looking at some of your titles and, and being a music fan is like Jefferson Starship Blows Against the Empire or Cheech and Chong's Chronicles, the graphic novel, and even One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer, Three Tales of John Lee Hooker. Yep. That sounds like my kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you should peruse the website, put some pre-orders in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what is the difference between a comic and a graphic novel? I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up where all we had was uh, DC Comics and Marvel Comics and Blondie and the Sunday Comics in the newspaper. And then when I moved to France, I discovered that, well, they're making these long form stories that are really graphic novels. What is the definition of a comic versus a graphic novel? The main difference, I would say, is that comics are sort of maybe more periodicals. Um, so when you go to the comic shop, you have a monthly issue, for example, that's published by DC or Marvel. 
or like some of the um, more independent uh, publishers like Image, which is kind of the biggest one among the independents, right. Scout Comics, Vault. And so those come out on a monthly basis, whereas graphic novels are, you know, it just comes out as is. 100 to 120 pages and eventually a lot of these periodicals are put into what they call collected editions which a lot of people not mistake i mean they call them graphic novels but um they're really just collected editions of the monthlies right so you'll see like for the sandman series is like 10 volumes i think uh and uh but yeah, that's that. I would say that's the main difference. What's the Alan Moore one? Beef Vendetta. Yeah. Um, I, you know, originally I believe it was you know because it came out as a, in periodical. It was DC, wasn't it? Yes. Right. And it came out in periodical format. You know, so that that was the sort of book package, maybe. <laughs> right. Um, right. So. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think it was originally conceived as a graphic novel. But it was, I think, conceived as like a a periodical with with a beginning and an end. What do they call them on Netflix now? Limited series. Uh, yeah, just like the Queen's Gambit. Yeah, there's it's not going to be season one, season two. Right. So, what would you call the comics that come out in France, like Tintin and Asterisk? Me? No, I was thinking. I was like, is it comics? Is it graphic novels? Like for because, a second there. Because generally like, they come out yeah. once a year. Mm-hmm. They come out in the fall, so they can be Christmas presents. And they don't ever get collected together because each one is, I think, 60 pages-ish in a large format, larger than the standard U.S. comic format. Yeah. That's more like a mystery series where you have a recurring detective and a new episode every year. I think the other thing to consider is where are they in the bookstore? Because I've noticed that they typically will separate comics from graphic novels. And when you look at things like, you know, comics or graphic novels for kids, typically it'll be in like an early reader, you know, kind of section, which typically falls under the graphic novel you know, a threshold, if you may. And so just from the categorization sake and how I typically see bookstores, I might put it in the graphic novel section. But that's just because typically when you look at the comic section, it's a little bit older. You don't see as many, you know, younger readers, at least when you're going to like a Barnes and Noblers or something. Yeah, that's a good point. So the graphic novels are more for adults than for children? Not so much because they have early readers and chapter books, which are on the younger children's age. I would say that the comics section, at least in a Barnes and Nobles, typically can skew a little bit older. But I would say the graphic novels, I've seen it, you know, more younger ages just personally when I go to bookstores. So this is all confusing to me as someone who doesn't really read many comics or graphic novels. We'll get to the the standard comic script bit in a bit, but has the industry tried to rationalize this a little bit or do they just let things go as they are? Do you mean like um, how things are categorized? How things are categorized, what they're called, what the audience for specific types of comics or graphic novels is. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap. I would say that um, the main issue that the comics industry has with that is how it butts up against traditional publishing. So I think that traditional publishing doesn't categorize comics according to, for example, genre. You have many different comics that are like mystery comics, adventure, romance. Nowadays, you have more variety. In Back in the day, because of the um, comics code, I can't remember the exact terminology, but um, 
um, back you know, in the old days with yeah. DC Comics. <laughs> well, yeah, like when when comics were only relegated to being about superheroes. Well, they weren't just about superheroes. Those DC Comics were those really gory horror stories. Yeah, they they were pulp. There there were romance comics. There were horror and mystery comics. That you had you ran the gamut as as far as subject matter was concerned. But um, oh, I'm so sorry. I should know this. I should uh, know the exact dates and names and stuff. But like there was there was a politician who made it uh, his crusade to go against, like, he was, it was like the Comics Code Authority or something like that, and everything had to follow um, a certain, like, guideline, and, oh my gosh, I'm going to get crucified for not knowing the exact terminology. Sorry, everyone. I think it was in the late 50s or the early 60s, because of EC Comics and all these horror comics and... You know, the sort of scantily clad women on the covers of the comics and comic books are corrupting America's youth, that sort of thing. Yes, that's that's that was the thing. And then everything could only be about like, uh, you know, American values and uh, superhero comics and that's it. But now you've got a resurgence and bookstores, I feel like, don't really know what to do with that. You know, they don't see comics as just a medium or a format. They see comics as a genre unto themselves. And that's just not how it should be. You know, if I wanted, um, you know, a comic about a uh, romance comic, I would go to I should go to the romance section and just browse by like title or author. Um, but it's not. Um, unfortunately, it's not like that. Right? Sounds good. Just real fast. I think it's interesting, too, because you look at the manga section and they put all the manga together. You know, you can search for anything and it's all different age groups. But then you look at, you know, comics and graphic novels and, you know, they'll divide them based on ages. So it's just kind of curious to see how we've adapted manga as a medium versus, you know, what we're still doing in the Western markets. That's interesting because I didn't even think of that as another type of comic. But of course it is. Are there any other types of comics that I'm not thinking of that are your American comic, your European comic, the manga, is there anything else? Yeah, there's hybrid comics. The hybrid ones were essentially you have, you know, maybe everything is done and you have like a couple of comic panels and then you'll have like paragraphs of like text and stuff and it's kind of chapter book and then you'll show a couple more panels. So you do see some hybrid comics out there as well. That's the that's another one that I can think of. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how the Scribner template for the standard comic script works. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. 
Okay, now that we still haven't found an answer of the difference between comics and graphic novels, and even during the break we were talking about other examples that are too numerous to mention, I want to talk now about the way comics are made because, again, when I was living in France and, and I worked in a bookstore for a few years and we had a couple of comic artists who came to sign their things, that's when I learned that it's not one person who makes a comic. There's one person who writes the story, usually. There's an illustrator. There's a colorist. And there's someone who writes the dialogue in that special kind of looks like a handwritten font thing. Letterer. It's a le letterer. A letterer. Yes. So is this the case with all comics? Are there these four different people involved? Or are there more than that? Um, it's not the case with all comics. I would say like with periodicals, um, Marvel, DC, uh, Scout and Vault. It's, it's definitely all these different moving parts of writer, sequential artist, letterer, colorist. Wait, sequential artist, what's that? Sequential artist is basically illustrator, somebody who specializes in comics, you know, like comic art. Okay, so that's the yes, artist, the artist part, part, right, but okay. Not all sequential okay. artists are also cartoonists. Cartoonists are people who do the art and the dialogue and the storytelling. Right. Oh, this yes. is confusing. So, okay, go on. <laughs> so you have cartoonists, you have sequential artists, and then you have illustrators, and not all illustrators can do sequential arts. Right, okay, because... It's it's not like it's animation where you have frame by frame, but you do have to draw in a sense that you can see the movement from one panel to the next, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the main difference between a sequential artist and an illustrator is a sequential artist has um, more of a design sense. So, um, you know, when they look at uh, a page, they, they can like make out panel layouts that serve the story best. So... Um, there will be one panel that's maybe bigger than the others because that's a moment you really want to focus on. Um, sequential artists will also be very, um, and writers, typically, if you want a, an experienced comic writer, they're going to be very aware of page terms. So that moment when the reader turns the page and sees an aha or like a surprise moment or like a, like a breathtaking moment, um, they're going to be very cognizant of like where that um, page turn is. So it's a design sense. It's a layout sense, you know, not just on the page, but the physicality of the book. Brigitte, let's talk about the Scribner template, because this is starting to sound a lot more interesting if you're bringing in page turns and all. I was thinking it was more like the script writing mode in Scribner, where you would have, you know, specific instructions. Can you give me an overview of how the Scribner template looks when you're using it? Yeah, of course. So when you go into the Scrivener template, you know, we have a couple of things that are already set up for you just to make life a lot easier. So we've already included a couple of the pages. We So essentially, if you click on the first page, you'll see that the first page is always on the right side. And so you'll notice that we typically have, you know, the right and then it'll switch from right page to left page because that's typically really easy, especially for an illustrator, just to kind of know which page they're on as they're going through the book. So we set a couple of those things up. And then we also have a sample of the script, which actually Camilla and Steens have put together when they were working on other templates. And that's really helpful just to kind of know, you know, what are you getting into? What is it going to look like once exported? But I think the thing for me, which is really, really great about our template is we automated a lot of the formatting for you. So you don't have to manually do that. 
So for an example, when it comes to the comic scripts, typically you want to know on the title of each page, you know, what page are you on? You also want to know if it's on the right or the left side in the book. And then in addition to that, you want to know, you know, things like how many panels do you have on a page? And if you're using something like, you know, Microsoft Word, it's very challenging to automate a lot of that. A lot of times you have to manually input, you know, what page you're on or what the panel is. But with Scrivener, because we've inputted a lot of the placeholders and essentially what the placeholders what you can do is it'll automate a lot of those things for you so you don't have to manually update them. So things like, you know, how many panels you have on a page, what panel are you on? We also put, you know, what the page is. And so a lot of these things are just super helpful because in a lot of other word processors, you have to do them yourself. It's not something that's automated for you. So it saves you a lot of time, you know, with Scrivener having all these automated things for you. So that's just a a little bit of a peek into the Scrivener template that we've created. So Camilla said before that the sequential artist is the one who decides where the different panels are, but you're talking about that it seems like it's the actual author who's making some of those decisions. Do these two work together at the same time, or is does the author make a first draft, then work with the sequential editor and refine the draft? It varies. It really varies. Um, you know, they are. It depends on like the company that you're working for, to be honest, um, or if you're working like, so if you have an image book, you already have a co-creator with a sequential artist and you're kind of like maybe talking every day over the phone or like, um, if you live close to each other, you're going to like maybe, you know, kind of brainstorm together or like work together really closely. But typically you're working for Z2 comics or DC or Marvel you'll have a writer who's thinking about how many panels are going to be in a page, but not necessarily, not always how they're going to be laid out. Some some writers do get very specific and some will be like half-half. Like they'll say, I really want a tight shot of this, like tight shot of hands or close up of an eye or something like that. And then you have writers who work the quote unquote Marvel method, which is basically sort of, I just want this to happen on a page. This is you, you as a sequential artist, you figure out how to lay it all out. I trust you to like do the best job to kind of convey what's happening. And that, that works pretty well for action oriented comics like superhero comics. So yeah, I mean, it, it really uh, varies across companies um, and uh, teams, creative teams. And um, a lot of writers see the script as a love letter or like a letter to the um, sequential artist. And uh, some people will get like, like very conversational in the script, very much like, almost like you're like literally talking to artist. Yeah. Um, one more thing I want to add on to that. So I'm an author illustrator, so I work both with scripts and then also in graphic novels, we have things called thumbnails, which essentially it's kind of like sketches of how things will be laid out on a page. And so to kind of piggyback off of Camilla, everybody kind of does their process differently. So for someone like me, sometimes I'll work on the thumbnails first and then I'll do the manuscripts. Um, and then sometimes I get inspiration from the manuscript that'll lead the thumbnails. So it's really kind of a conversation while, as I know some publishing houses, they require a completed manuscript once you've sold the book, sometimes sooner than that if you're an author exclusive. So it kind of really depends on if you're, you know, 
just an author, an author illustrator, and then what the publisher is or the editor that you're working with. This is very interesting because I've talked to some novelists who do collaborations and maybe one person gives the ideas and the other fleshes them out, or maybe one person writes one chapter, the other writes the next, they send them back. But here there's a different type of collaboration that goes in, because I guess it's the visual aspect that makes it so different. You're not just writing the words and the continuity of what's going on, but the writer has to think of the visuals and the visual artist has to bring the words in just right. And also the limitation of not too many words because you can't fill up a page with words, right? Yeah, that's a huge thing. And for me, at least also doing the illustration, the manuscript to me is more like guidelines than it is kind of the final thing. So sometimes when I start illustrating based off a of manuscript, I might get inspired by the illustration. So, you know, maybe someone who's an illustrator only might work with the writer in order to come up with kind of a new paneling. It's not like, okay, the manuscript's done. It has to be 100% exactly like this. You still have flexibility. And I think a huge portion of that is when you're working on the illustration, it's just as much storytelling as the writing. And it can spark things that maybe you didn't consider when you weren't illustrating it out. So the writer writes their manuscript, the illustrator takes that does it then go back to the writer who might say, well, I don't like this or I want this to be different? What What's the power of balance in this duo here? I hate to say it, but it really depends on who the writer is. You know, if the writer is a big deal like Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore, you know, the editor will give it a once over, you know, obviously look for any like errors and consistency again. But like somebody like Neil Gaiman will have a final say on like, oh, can we move this hand up a little bit or like, you know, um, and that at that point you have to pay the artist kind of like a an edit fee. Um, it, you know, all of these things typically will happen at the thumbnails stage that Brigida mentioned. It was, that's when it, everything's kind of still a rough layouts. So like you'll have sort of like this character will be positioned a certain way and like these certain panels will take up a certain amount of space, that kind of thing. And that's when, you know, ideally you want all the changes to come in at that point. But there are situations where a writer will, will request um, a change at a later stage. And so, yeah, it all depends. Like, for example, with Z2 Comics, it's the licensor has final say. So Tori, Tori Amos is uh, going to have it's her book. So, I mean, like she's going to say, if, if I, if I don't like this, it's going to, you know, we have to change it, you know? Um, so it really just depends on the company. It depends on the product. Do all artists create digitally today, or are there still some analog artists? Ooh, they're shaking their heads. No. Okay. I, I was thinking it would be like 80, 20 digital analog. Ooh, I wish I could tell you what the ratio was, but it just runs the gamut. Yeah. It's very different. And um, yeah, one of the things, so I'm actually in a clip studio paint right now, and I'm not going to name who, but there are a lot of like really, really big author illustrators in there who are bestsellers and stuff. And you would never know that they do everything by hand. You know, there's a lot of people, and I think especially some of the most popular, well-known ones, sometimes they've been working in this industry for such a long time that, you know, they're kind of used to their processes. And and to be honest, a lot of these programs didn't exist like 10 to 20 years ago, and it hasn't been until recent times that people have taken them on. So, yeah, it's uh, 
it's definitely, I, I couldn't give you a percentage, but it's a lot more hand-drawn than you would expect. Okay. The one big question I have is the lettering. Haven't they developed fonts to do that, or do they still have to do that by hand? No, it's it's all it's all digital now. They used to oh, it is. Hand, it used to all be hand lettered, but now it's all digital. Uh, unless somebody really wants to hand letter, like sometimes you'll have cartoonists who really want everything to look handwritten, and they take it seriously. So, but typically, like a letter, everything is done digitally. You just it's a word processor type situation. You pick font and you just type away and then you drag it wherever. And, and you have enough leeway to adjust the kerning to fit things in when you... Yeah. And also about that, I know a lot, a lot of graphic novels, they also, if they like the handwritten font, they'll actually create a font based off somebody's handwritten font. And so that really expedites the process as well. Yeah. That makes it look more personalized. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like to ask my guests if they can recommend a book for our listeners. And in your case, can you each recommend either a comic book or graphic novel, whichever you want? What have you read recently that you think our listeners might like to discover? This is rough. This is rough because there's so many good ones to recommend. And I'll uh, just pick one for people who don't know graphic novels and comics. Oh, okay. So for someone who's just beginning, I guess. Yeah. Mm, for someone who's just getting into graphic novels and adult, uh, Fun Home, classic. Not not classic in the sense of like really, really old, but like it was, I think, the New York Times bestsellers list. It was just, you know, I think it might have been Book of the Time Magazine's Book of the Year when it came out. Um, so that's a great, in my opinion, starter for someone who's like maybe more into familiar with like literary work, but um, it's it's got... It's just a great, it's one of the best graphic novels. Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. Brigitta, what would you recommend? Mine would probably be The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. I'm just absolutely obsessed with that book. I think that Jen Wang is a master when it comes to paneling and pacing and the story itself. I mean, I think Disney actually recently acquired it for like a movie. So it's, I think it could be big one day, but yeah, I absolutely love that book. I also second that uh, recommendation. <laughs> okay, Brigitte Blair and Camilla Jang, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much, Kirk. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to scrivenerapp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>